In this mini-series, we have the pleasure of conversing with Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin on the topic of international disarmament law. He is joined by Ms. Dominica de Beaufort, Senior Policy Officer with the Security and Law Program at the GCSP, where she is also the course director of the International Disarmament Law Executive Course and Virtual Learning Journey. So Stuart, in the last episode, we quite extensively discussed core features of global disarmament treaties. And so we discussed um, stockpile destruction, uh, the development of weapons, the use of weapons, and you also mentioned victim assistance. Today, the goal will be to discuss another very important issue, which is the implementation of global disarmament treaties. Because uh, if we think about it, the very ultimate goal of uh, multilateral or bilateral treaties is that states comply with those treaties. So looking at the global disarmament treaties, what type of mechanisms to support implementation can we find? So there's a range of uh, implementing mechanisms depending on the treaty. There's no one set formula. Uh, it, it differs from treaty to treaty. But the first thing to say, of course, is that a state doesn't tend to join the disarmament treaty unless they're actually committed to it because they realize that there will be consequences, whether that be political or more formal consequences, if they fail to implement it correctly. In terms of uh, implementation mechanisms, probably the most far-reaching is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons established under the Chemical Weapons Convention. This has very far-reaching powers to investigate uh, alleged violations uh, of the treaty and is the most sophisticated of all the global disarmament treaties. A more common feature is the opportunity to submit reports uh, on implementation, but also to discuss those reports and more broadly issues of interpretation and application in annual conferences of states parties or five-year review conferences. In uh, some of the more recent uh, treaties, we have what are called implementation support units. Those are not like the OPCW. They don't have far-reaching powers. Their aim is to assist states in implementing uh, such uh, provisions. And uh, when we started uh, uh, discussing and and talking about uh, international disarmament law, we briefly uh, spoke about history. So so now I'm thinking about uh, 1899 and the first international peace conference in The Hague, where states adopted uh, joint declarations that included prohibitions on, for instance, uh, dum-dum bullets. But back then, as you also mentioned, it was not possible really for states to adopt proposals on general disarmament measures. And this was due to the general resistance against inspections and monitoring compliance. Do you have the feeling that much see changed since then, actually, when looking at today's treaties and, and the way they're being monitored? No, this is clearly a long-standing uh, concern, because what you're doing is you're allowing another state or an international organization into your territory to poke around and ask uh, lots of impertinent impertinent questions about what you're doing, what you're doing uh, with respect to research, what you're doing with respect to stockpiles, for example. So you're you're absolutely right. Um, It was a key issue in the uh, 1899 Peace Conference about how you monitor and ensure compliance. And it continues to be a key issue today. Just to give one example, Despite pressure from from a number of states, there is still no monitoring mechanism under the Biological Weapons Convention. 
And that is because of fear, in particular by the United States, that other states will come in and start to look at its pharmaceutical industry and steal some of its secrets. So it remains a challenging issue. But good monitoring builds confidence among all states' parties and makes sure that the treaty is implemented properly. So it's a key element in particular with respect to weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, so 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 yeah, that's a good point. Now let's think a moment that a state um, does not comply with the treaty. Um, are there any procedures for violations of the treaty in global disarmament treaties? There are a number of uh, procedures uh, that uh, exist, but it is clear that a state is not taken before a court and sentenced to jail in the way that an individual uh, is if he or she uh, violates the criminal law. So we are looking at a slightly different register of uh, mechanisms. But firstly, the existence of fact-finding missions, for example, compulsory in uh, certain circumstances, on-site uh, fact-finding, that's a far-reaching uh, monitoring obligation and is already uh, a recognition that there are serious concerns about a state's compliance. The ability to conduct surveillance, whether that be on a national or on a treaty uh, basis, which is provided for in uh, several arms control uh, agreements, is also important. Um, you're trying to establish what the truth is. And the more, more mechanisms that you have to do that, the better the compliance. Can you think of a, of a good example, a good pupil in, in this field? So a country that opened up its doors and says, well, uh, please check, we are, we are doing fine? Well, there are many states under the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, that have fully uh, complied uh, with the obligations. They allow the OPCW to come in on a fairly regular basis, in particular those states that did have a chemical weapons uh, capacity. So, for example, I mentioned Port and Down. They regularly receive inspections from the OPCW to make sure that what they're doing is for purely peaceful purposes and is not being diverted uh, to hostile uh, ends. I, I think it is more difficult sometimes in the nuclear field. So the IAEA, the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency has the power to uh, verify compliance with safeguards agreements with states. And there, the situation is more complicated. With respect to North Korea, they asked the IAEA to leave. Iran's compliance with uh, its safeguards agreements has been patchy, although uh, recently uh, it has significantly improved. So it's more difficult with respect uh, to uh, the nuclear field. But nonetheless, there are still plenty of good examples. So that's really good to hear that in spite of uh, recent setbacks, we, we do find uh, success stories. Now, uh, moving from compliance to enforcement, what type of enforcement mechanisms do we find in international disarmament treaties? So uh, there are uh, provisions for findings of, uh, of violations But to be clear, these are not particularly far-reaching. The two real uh, mechanisms for enforcement, uh, which we're going to talk about, I think, in a while, are the International Court of Justice and especially the UN Security Council. And there is the possibility to refer disputes uh, before the ICJ or uh, to uh, report to the uh, council. And those are really the ultimate opportunities to have Uh, enforcement provisions 
on a state that is not complying with its obligations. Now, coming back to the UN Security Council uh, that you've just mentioned and the International Court of Justice, um, can you maybe give uh, an example on how one or the other body has been involved in the field of disarmament? So uh, both uh, bodies uh, have been involved. Uh, the UN Security Council, uh, of course, uh, has taken a very far-reaching action with respect to North Korea. North Korea was a party uh, to the NPT and uh, then decided to uh, withdraw. So uh, the council continues to put upon North Korea. There have also been the issues as to whether Iran has been developing a nuclear weapon. And equally, there have been uh, far-reaching sanctions imposed. This is exceptional, I think it's fair to say. A state really has to be engaging in some pretty uh, fundamental unlawful activity before the Security Council will get involved. But it is there as the primary mechanism for uh, the maintenance of international peace and security. Other cases can come before uh, the International Court of Justice. And there are both what we call contentious cases. That means cases by one state against another. But there are also advisory opinions. Just to give an example, in 1996, the ICJ issued a very important advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. And it decided that all states had an obligation to negotiate and conclude a treaty on nuclear disarmament. That's a very far-reaching finding. This could actually be a, a very good counter-argument to those who think, oh, the Security Council actually is not working, it fails to unite, and it is basically always in a stalemate. So when it should act, it, it never does act. Um, what do you think? The UN Security Council does take action. It has the incredible power to authorize the use of force against a UN member state. That is uh, extremely far-reaching. Now, of course, it doesn't do that very often, But it does do that. We saw that with respect uh, to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in uh, 1990. We've seen it, as I mentioned, in, with respect to the development of nuclear weapons by North Korea and Iran. Of course, the record is patchy. It is far from perfect. In particular, when allegations are made against one of the permanent, one of the five permanent members of the council, because they have that veto power. And that is a, a structural impediment to non-discriminatory application uh, of the rules. But uh, the alternative, that there be no mechanism and no rules, I think would lead to anarchy. I think we're better as we are. Of course, we could be far better still. Yes, I agree. It is, it is definitely better than, than nothing. Now, having discussed uh, compliance and enforcement mechanisms, I would like to talk a bit about the way forward and the tasks that should be given priority in future work to promote the international legal regulation of disarmament, arms control and non-proliferation. So, Stuart, um, what would be for you the top three priorities that states should uh, take on their agenda? Well, I'll, I'll suggest uh, two, uh, at least, that I think are quite pressing um, and they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum of, of weapons. If, if you like. At the top end of the spectrum, it is high time that states, the nuclear armed states, sat down and began to negotiate comprehensive nuclear disarmament. The Treaty on the Prohibition of, the, of Nuclear Weapons is a wake-up call to nuclear armed states that they need to take their obligations under the Non-Proliferation Treaty seriously, and certainly far more seriously than they have in, in, in recent years. What we're seeing is a new nuclear arms race. And at a time of global pandemic, that money 
could be far better used. On the other end of the, the spectrum, I think there's unfinished business within the convention on certain conventional weapons, and specifically with respect to anti-tank, anti-vehicle mines. We have, as you know, the prohibition on anti-personnel mines, but actually today there are many civilians being killed by anti-vehicle mines. There was some uh, better regulation in 1996 in the amended Protocol 2, but it falls far short of what we need. We need either a prohibition or very far-reaching restrictions on the use of anti-vehicle mines. Stuart, you, you briefly mentioned the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, so the review conference was actually uh, supposed to happen in 2020, but well, uh, due to COVID-19, it, it, it was postponed and well, it should take place before April of next year. And who knows, maybe as a virtual conference. So my question for you would be the following. What are the key issues that will be discussed at the conference? What I think that the key issues are that nuclear armed states finally take seriously that Article 6 is, uh, the, that requires uh, nuclear disarmament is not just an add-on, that it is part and parcel of the NPT, that states take seriously measures to begin comprehensive nuclear disarmament in whatever forum they decide, whether that be within the United Nations, whether that be uh, in, in a bilateral or multilateral uh, forum, but that they take those obligations seriously. Because otherwise, the new nuclear arms race, which is one focusing on technology as opposed to necessarily just numbers, is going to spiral out of control. Now, a last issue that I would like to, to touch upon is a soft law and, and the role soft law could or should play in further developing international disarmament law. I know that there are some states that, that say, well, legally non-binding instruments uh, like political declarations uh, can actually be a first step towards a new treaty or at least create a common ground for further discussion. So it is actually preferable to, to go for, for soft law instruments. But then there are others who argue, um, well, states actually merely pay lip service this way. What is your stance on that? So certainly soft law, politically binding uh, declarations, have an important role in international law generally. And uh, if we look at uh, issues around uh, use of force, there are uh, the 1990 basic principles on the use of force and firearms, very important for addressing issues of law enforcement. There's the Safe Schools Declaration, which promotes the protection of schools during situations of armed conflict. Those are important. In disarmament law, it's a little harder to make the argument in favour, in my view. Just to give an example, the plan of action on small arms and light weapons is a soft law agreement, a politically binding agreement. And I think it's safe to say it has not had the same effects as has the Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Convention or the Convention on Cluster Munitions. And it hasn't had the same effects because firstly, it doesn't create binding obligations. And secondly, and as a consequence of that, states have not provided the necessary resources. $10 billion of funding has gone in to the Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Convention, most of it are on clearance. Very small sums comparatively have been uh, allocated to small arms and light weapons, which is a far, far greater uh, problem facing uh, many communities around the world. And I think the primary reason is because there isn't a disarmament treaty. Thank you very much for highlighting this, because it is true that, that soft law instruments actually may work better in some areas uh, than others. So yeah, a good point. Stuart, I think we've come to an end. And 
I would like to thank you very much for your time and for all your insights that you have shared with us. And before I say goodbye, I still was a bit curious to see what your current writing projects were. So what um, will be your future projects? Well, I'm uh, working with uh, Tobias on uh, finalizing a, a book on the protection of civilians, uh, which uh, will come out next year. So that's a, a very exciting project. And I'm also writing a book about law, policy and practice on nuclear weapons, which uh, will also come out uh, towards the end of next year. So those are two uh, exciting writing uh, projects that I have on at the moment. Thank you. Thank you very much again. And also thank you to all of you who are listening to us and have stayed with us throughout the three episodes. And before I say goodbye to you, I would like to conclude by actually recommending three things to you. So if you wish to dive deeper into the topic of international disarmament law, the very first thing, of course, would be the Guide to International Disarmament Law by Stuart Casey Maslin and Tobias Wessner. We have, we have mentioned this book during the podcast. And then the second thing would be a very practical and actually modern working tool, which is the Disarm app that the GCSP launched earlier this year. So if you don't know it yet, I would really invite you to go to the Disarm app webpage, download the app, or you can also use it on your desktops because it is a web app. So there you will find all uh, definitions of core elements of global disarmament treaties. There is a huge database. So please uh, click yourselves through the page and, and enjoy. The last item that I would like to recommend is our virtual learning journey on international disarmament law that we have launched actually last year. So this year is the second edition. And as I've said, it's a virtual course. We will have Stuart on board for this training course also many other experts in the field. So please go to the GCSP website to find out more, the dates, uh, the course program and any other information you may want to know. And I also will be very happy to answer your questions via email. So goodbye and stay healthy. Mm -hmm.